Jesus, in explaining why he couldn't cure every single person that he came across, makes a passing reference to a Hebrew scripture. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, he says, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. For Jesus, healing is always about deeper transformation, not just the tending of wounds or the healing of disease, but the curing of a spiritual sickness. And that's what this text is all about, too. This tale that you're about to hear is the story of a proud man, Naaman the Syrian, forced to humble himself in order to find healing and bring about personal transformation. The prophet Elisha cures more than Naaman's physical disease. He also cures his swollen ego. And if we want to bring about healing in our world, we must also humble ourselves, whether we want to or not. A reading from 1 Kings. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Armenians, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my lord were um, with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to give death or life, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said, sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there was a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought for me he would surely come out and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, and would have waved his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in rage. But his servants approached and said to him, 
Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. <clears throat> Amen. Friends, please pray with me. O oh, everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we should probably talk about what happened here a couple of weeks ago in church. It's possible, I suppose, that you didn't even notice, uh, but it was probably the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me in worship, and that's saying a lot, uh, given the fact that I've tripped on my clerical robes and dropped wedding rings and once tried to give a baby back to the wrong parents <laughs> after a baptism. But this stuff, you know, this is all par for the course, more or less, when you earn your living up here talking in front of people, you're going to make mistakes and lose face from time to time. But this particular incident that I'm referring to, this was a, a horse of another color. It happened two weeks ago when our guest preacher, the Reverend Lydia Moki, was here with us. And given that Lydia is a few inches shorter than I am, we agreed that she should probably stand on the little footstool here in the pulpit when she delivered her sermon. So anyway, uh, just before I was about to collect the offering from the ushers, I knelt down to shift the wooden step here into place in the pulpit, and as I bent down, I heard a dreadful sound. RIP! Yes, that was the sound of my trousers ripping. I didn't think much of it at first, figuring it was just a small tear. Well, the good news is that it the pants had ripped along the seam. The bad news is that the inner seam was torn all the way from my knee up to places better left unmentioned. It was bad. And to make matters worse, you know, the air conditioning was broken that morning, so Lydia and I had decided to forego our clerical robes, which would have gone a long way towards covering my shame. Now, it's easy to feel self-important up here, you know, uh, when you're strutting around like you're the center of attention rather than the God that we have all come here to worship. But nothing undermines an emperor like the realization that he has no clothes, <laughs> or at least a giant hole in his pants. So in any case, I couldn't just stay, you know, down here, hunched over by the pulpit for the rest of the service like some attentive disciple. I had to get up, I had to collect the offering plates, uh, and the whole time I, I had to move about in such a way as to try to disguise the wardrobe malfunction, so I'm shuffling around like a penguin up here. It was like one of those bad dreams where you're giving a presentation in class and you suddenly realize that you're naked. Now, I wasn't totally exposed, 
but it was pretty bad. I've been at this church a long time. You know, we've, we've all gotten to know each other pretty well, but not well enough to see my Star Wars underpants. Those belong in a galaxy far, far away. I had never in all my life been so humiliated. I don't know how many of you saw what happened, but it doesn't really matter, does it? The whole experience was humbling, to say the least. But then maybe being humbled once in a while isn't such a bad thing. The well-known writer and theologian Richard Rohr once wrote, I have prayed for years for one good humiliation a day. I heard him interviewed on Krista Tippett's On Being radio show recently, and she asked him about that remark. And Rohr replied that he often gets a lot of praise and adulation for his work, and that he worries about it going to his head. So a little bit of embarrassment or criticism goes a long way towards keeping him grounded. And so for me, this became a necessity, he told her, that I had to watch how do I react to not getting my way, to people not agreeing with me, to people not admiring me. And there's plenty of them. I ask God for one good humiliation a day, and I usually get it, one hate letter or whatever it might be. It's a wise bit of counsel, to be sure, how we react to humiliation or embarrassment, to the undermining of our ego and our self-importance is very telling. And the harder we take it, I think, the, the more seriously we take ourselves, while the more we stand to benefit from a healthy sense of proportion. Sometimes it's good to be reminded that our will is not always God's will, and the universe does not usually revolve around us. In his famous series of humorous science fiction books, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the late Douglas Adams writes a vignette about a device that he calls the total perspective vortex. According to the fiction, it was built by an alien philosopher named Trintragula to annoy his wife, who frequently criticized him for staring into space, reverse engineering safety pins, pontificating on the ontological cakeness of a slice of cake, and other generally useless activities that philosophers are wont to pursue. Have some sense of proportion, she'd tell him as often as 38 times a day. And so, just to spite her and to prove how well-developed his sense of proportion was, he invented the total perspective vortex. It's, it's a machine that shows you just how large the universe really is in all of its splendor, with an infinitesimally small dot labeled, you are here, indicating just how small and insignificant you are in relation to it. And the philosopher tried it out on his wife. To Trintragula's horror, Adams writes, the shock completely annihilated her brain. But to his satisfaction, he realized that he had proved conclusively that if life is going to exist in a universe of this size, then the one thing it cannot afford to have is a sense of proportion. All that he really demonstrates, of course, is the size of his own ego, the, the need to always be right, to be able to say to his wife, I told you so, as if that were ever a good idea. I think Trintragula would benefit from a little time 
in his own machine, a reminder that some things are bigger than his own swelled head. Now, in the early days of Israel, there lived another man, the Syrian, a general called Naaman, who had a rather high opinion of himself. He was tall, and he was strong, and he was handsome, the victor of many battles, a national treasure. But Naaman also suffered from leprosy, a debilitating and humiliating condition that destroyed his good looks and withered his strong body. Here is a proud man, but a man who is willing to swallow his pride if it means being healed. Now, to fully appreciate this story, you have to understand a little bit of the political background here. You see, Syria and Israel were not exactly on friendly terms. Geographically, they were neighbors, uh, still are, but since the days of King David, long before Naaman ever lived, Syria had been a thorn in Israel's side. They fought countless small wars along their common border and sporadically sent raiding parties across to kidnap each other's people. Naaman's story has political implications that cannot be ignored. But regardless of the political tension, Naaman implores Israel for help. He reaches across the proverbial aisle and hope that Israel's God can cure his disease. But naturally, when Naaman offers an olive branch to King Jeroboam of Israel, Jeroboam thinks that it's some kind of trap. Am I God to give life or death that this man sends word to cure him of his leprosy? Cries the king, just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. And then in a fury, Jeroboam tears his own clothes. I can't help but wonder, too, if he ripped a hole in his pants in front of the royal court. Now, given the political situation, it's to Naaman's credit that he's even willing uh, to send this missive to Israel's king. It's a humbling gesture, a plea for help from a long-standing enemy. But there's only so much pride that Naaman is willing to swallow. After the king refers him to the prophet Elisha, Naaman expects the lowly prophet to come to him as a show of respect. You see, it's one thing to bow before a king, even a foreign king, even an enemy king. But submitting himself to the mercy of an Israelite, a homeless vagabond, no less. It was unthinkable for Naaman, commander of armies and leader among men. And when Elisha sends Naaman a note instead of appearing in person, telling him to bathe in the river Jordan, Naaman loses it. I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the spot and cure the leprosy, Naaman complains. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Naaman is willing to humble himself. He's willing to reach across the aisle, but only on his own terms. And if he really wants anything to change, if he really wants things to get better, he's got to get over himself and realize that the world does not revolve around him. 
Our political climate today isn't so different, really. The battlefield and the weapons have changed, but the atmosphere is just as hostile. Democrats and Republicans, much like ancient Syria and Israel, are locked in perpetual conflict, and there aren't many on either side who seem willing to reach across the aisle. Friends, I would be remiss if I did not speak to the crisis that's been unfolding this past week, and for quite a while, really, at our southern border. This issue is enormously complicated and emotionally fraught, and I wade into these waters humbly. I certainly don't have all of the answers, but I am nonetheless compelled to speak because What's going on down there illustrates the consequences of political ego in ways that few other things can. Though many suspected as much, we all recently got a look into the squalor that children are living in at various detention centers. We sleep on a cement bench, said one eight-year-old boy who was interviewed. There are two mats in the room, but the big kids sleep on the mats, so we have to sleep on the cement bench. Eight years old. Just like my own son. We've not been able to shower, a teenager remarked. The toilet is out in the open in the cage, and there is no door for any privacy. There is water, but no soap to wash our hands. There are no paper towels to dry our hands. We've not been given a toothbrush or toothpaste to brush our teeth. And one young mother, a pregnant girl of 17, gives an especially chilling account. I was given a blanket and a mattress, she says, but then at 3 a.m. the guards took the blanket and mattress. My baby was left sleeping on the floor. In fact, almost every night the guards wake us up at 3 a.m. and take away our sleeping mattresses and blankets. They leave babies, even little babies of two or three months, sleeping on the cold floor. For me, because I'm so pregnant, sleeping on the floor is very painful for my back and hips. I think the guards act this way to punish us. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. We all got a glimpse this week of something that no one wanted to see. Now, I am encouraged that our Congress is able to pass a bipartisan relief bill this week to alleviate some of these conditions, even if it does not go as far as some would like. But even that was a struggle. There's a lot of ego in Washington. There always has been. It's sort of the nature of the beast. And I don't hear anyone apologizing for letting this happen. Instead, we get sound bites of a federal lawyer claiming that the government doesn't legally have to give these kids soap or a toothbrush, which was really a poor attempt to save face. And it had the opposite effect, infuriating critics of the policies that got us here. And how did we get here? When it comes to partisan politics, there is generally a deep and abiding unwillingness to reach across the aisle and compromise on anything. People often talk about a lack of political will, but I would argue there is far too much political will, too much stubbornness, too much ego, and political will is not always God's will. And that's why we find ourselves in this 
moral crisis right now because we couldn't build a proper immigration system together. We couldn't agree on anything, not even fundamental human rights. We spent more time and money trying to keep people out than we did trying to find safe and productive ways to welcome them in. And we succumbed to political gridlock. When that dreadful photograph surfaced of Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his 23-month-old daughter, Valeria, drowned in the River Grande, I'd have liked to see someone apologize. Anyone, someone. I'd have liked to hear someone say, we let this happen, and I'm sorry. Admit that we got it wrong. Come together, work to fix it, instead of continuing blindly down a dangerous road. But it's been my observation for a very long time that politicians and leaders in general don't apologize very often. No one wants to be the emperor with no clothes. In the end, Naaman gives in and he follows Elisha's counsel. He removes his garments, slowly revealing the mottled, peeling, diseased skin underneath for everyone to see. And he lowers himself into the waters of the Jordan River over and over again, seven times, according to Elisha's command in Israelite custom. A humbling gesture for an avowed enemy of Israel, more accustomed to spilling blood on its banks. And when Naaman finally emerges, he is healed. Now like Naaman, I know I risk losing face right now by even wading into these politically fraught waters. But as his story illustrates so clearly, sometimes you have to lose face if you want to save something more important. Amen.